Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Kush Audio, a premium manufacturer of top quality audio hardware and plugins. The high end just got higher. Visit thehouseofkush.com for more information. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joe Lanasek, and Al Levy. Hey guys, welcome to the Joey Sturgis Forum Podcast. I'm Joey Sturgis, and with me as always is Joel Wanasek and A.L. Levy. And, uh... Hello! How you guys doing? Not bad, not bad. Excited for this episode, actually. Yeah, this is gonna be really awesome, because I've been listening to Yenz's work forever, and I've always really enjoyed his mixing style, and if there is, like, a guy that I would consider in, like, the top four or five European A-list guys, I feel like... He's one of them for metal. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. And that's Jens Bogren for anyone who doesn't know who we're talking about. He's worked with so many great artists, Opeth, Devin Townsend, Creator, uh, At the Gates, Marty Friedman. Yeah, Marty Friedman, Arch Enemy, Between the Buried and Me. Like, list just goes on and on and on and on. And I think what people love about his style is that he's always kept it modern, but supernatural too. He's also got an amazingly gorgeous studio called Fascination Street. So you can go to fascinationstreet.se. It's got two beautiful locations, one that's kind of a lodging and band stay facility for recording albums. And the other one is kind of where he handles mixes and masters and the dude is just winning at this, basically. That's all there is to it. What's the Opeth records that you guys really like? What are they called? Um, Watershed and Ghost Reveries. The first one he did was Ghost Reveries in 2005, I believe. And that was the first time I had heard about him. It was kind of a breakthrough because at the time, you know, the sound was going towards the super sampled, super loud, super everything we have nowadays. But then this Opeth record came out and it was just as punchy, just as loud as everything else, but it was still really, really natural and intricate, detailed, gorgeous sounding, airy, like, you know, all those adjectives you can think of. It had a ton of dynamics too, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was really dynamic, but it stood up against everything else. And from that point on, I've just been following his career kind of blends the modern with the music real well. Yeah, I actually really liked, I don't think he worked on this record, but I like Deliverance and Damnation. But Watershed is a really awesome one. I think I actually saw them uh, when they were doing that live. When They had the tour where they were doing that thing. I, I saw them during that tour. It was really cool. <laughs> where they were doing that thing that bands do, <laughs> like go on tour. When they were doing that thing. Uh. Yeah. You forget to drink your coffee today? I'm drinking it right now. <laughs> well, you start slamming it. Let's go. Yeah, I saw I saw Opeth on that tour when they did that thing too. It was pretty great. But uh, They opened for that band, right? <laughs> actually, act, well, yeah, Dream Theater, right? Um, they were... That was when they were supporting Dream Theater, and then after that, they headlined every time from there on out. But yeah, Watershed was another one of those records that kept it modern, but just kept it gorgeous and dynamic and intricate and all those words I already used. I mean, well, how are you going to describe it? Long story short, this guy's done 10, 20, 30 of these mega hitters, and I really like a lot of his body of his work, like you guys just said. And uh, 
really interested to know a little bit more about his studio because he's located in Sweden. And I mean, Swedes are just sweet. Yeah. And it's two locations also. I think that that's kind of part of what's interesting about it. They're four hours apart as well. So definitely got the franchise thing happening. Sounds like Michigan. Everything's four hours apart. <laughs> you go, got to go four hours to go to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. It's well, a long walk. Didn't you have to like deal with a situation like that when you were first coming up? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I started a studio in the garage and uh, there's no bathroom installed. You'd have to drive to the gas station to take a shit. And uh, I, I had to go through three years of that and finally got, you know, enough money to buy a house. But the thing I never really got to do, which, you know, Jens is doing is take it all the way up to the level of building your own place or, or at least acquiring your own place and, and tweaking it to, you know, whatever you like. So I'm really interested to learn about his actual studio, you know, the construction process, if, if he did that. Did, did he build it or did he buy it? I am curious to find that out too because the place is just gorgeous. and Yeah, I'm jealous. I really wish I had my own space. I've never had the opportunity to. I've always had to do the whole living thing, which takes up a lot of money. So it's going to be cool. Well, let's bring him on, shall we? All right, cool. So Jens, thanks for being with us. I was telling the guys that we almost worked together about 10 years ago on the Doth record, it was just about ready to happen. It's what I wanted. I don't know if I got to ever tell you this, but it's my band was really, really bummed out. Like those whole label political thing happened and we had kind of no choice. Not that it came out bad because Colin Richardson is great, but I personally really wish that I could have gone to your place in Sweden and had you mix the record because... I was in love with uh, Ghost Reveries, and that's why we hit you up in the first place. So I, I don't know if I ever got to explain that to you, but no, ten, uh, year, 10 years later, please don't kill me. I'm still bitter. <laughs> I'm still bitter. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. I definitely understand the, the process of the yeah, business. Is, we didn't totally understand the process back then, but uh, we, we learned very quickly that... We kind of had no choice on certain things, but yeah. again, that I don't want anyone to think that I'm unhappy with Colin's job because he's phenomenal. But yeah, it almost happened. And with that, let's talk about your place a little bit because we've all been looking at it, and I've been familiar with it for ages, as has Joel, and uh, it's gorgeous. You've had it since 2001. Was it always that nice? Well, to be honest, it's... Um these are just dummy pictures. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but it's um, um, back in 2001. Uh, I sort of got a lease on a studio uh, that is was very nice, and uh, it was like a classic big recording facility. And um, uh, 2008, I moved. Um, I was sort of uh, debating with myself whether it was worth the personal investment of being into you know production and uh, recording so I sort of uh, made a deal with my with my wife and we uh, built a house and a new studio a smaller studio that's uh, the sort of black and white stuff that you can see on the website that's my new place the old place are not in the pictures anymore but um, I also sort of felt the need to to have that big recording room so I have been leasing a studio in another city, actually, 
up until like two years ago, where I bought a fourth studio in Stockholm. So it's a little confusing, but uh, they are. Wait, so how many studios do you have? Well, right now I have two. <laughs> okay. Was there ever a time where you had three or four at the same time, or you just have been kind of transitioning from two to two to two? Yeah, the, the transition um, between the um, third and fourth place was uh, sort of, well, it overlapped a little bit, but um, yeah, I sort of got the opportunity about the the Stockholm studio and uh, it wasn't a good time. But then the guy called Johan Ernborg, uh, who's been working for me a lot, he sort of cut his hair and got a real job. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I took the Stockholm opportunity, and uh, that's my sort of place where I do drums. And uh, I have a guy called uh, uh, David Castillo working there, and uh, we sort of have that place together. So it, it's a good um, way for me to have access to that sort of recording facility, but still have this um, nice mixing, mastering, uh, overdub facility next to my house. Okay, so the other facility kind of runs year-round and you just go there and use it when you need to. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Sweet. That sounds like a great situation. Well, I don't know, perhaps it's not that great, but uh, it, it works for me, definitely, so that's all right. Well, and also the other thing that we've noticed is that you've got a fantastic gear collection, and not just that, but the studios, you know, whether it's the the big one or your personal one are very, very nicely put together. A lot of aesthetic detail, which I think is hugely important in the studio. And also there's a phenomenal gear collection. Have you been putting that together as well? Or did that kind of come over from the older studios that you that you picked up? Um, no, I think I've collected that over the years, basically. The first studio that I got had an, a soundtracks console and basically, you know, drummer stuff and uh, low-end, um, well, you know, s- almost semi-professional stuff. That's sort of how I started out. Eventually, I, you know, got my first SSL console and um, uh, started to sort of learn more about what kind of gear you were supposed to have and... <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's basically over the years, I've, I guess I've collected some stuff. When do you think the transition was from, I guess, semi-pro to pro? Like, were you always doing this full time or did you ever work another job? Well, I had like one year after school or like grade 12 in Sweden, uh, like when I was 16 or something. Uh, oh, sorry, 18, where I sort of, I, I worked at, the, at a music store uh, doing live sound for them. Then I got the opportunity to teach uh, sound engineering at the school that I used to attend. Well, I'm not going to explain the Swedish school system for you, but uh, I did that for like two and a half years. Um, So that was my main profession. And then I started my own company, did live gigs, and I did as many studio recordings as I could with local bands um, and stuff like that. And then I sort of came to a point where I felt that I would stagnate. Is that the correct word? That's the correct word, yeah. <laughs> yes. If I would, you know, keep doing the, the teaching job to that extent. So I looked around for uh, for work. I wanted to be work in a studio, which was pretty naive. But um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I came across this, this studio that was um, for free. And uh, that was free. 
I went to the bank and I said, hey, I had this... So it was uh, available, not free. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I went to the bank with this great idea of uh, buying this phenomenal studio. But uh, they said, uh, you're an idiot. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> really? Yeah, so I sort of, um, you know, I, I didn't have any cash or anything. So I sort of was able to get a lease on that studio... Uh, including the gear. Um, so that's sort of how I came into doing this full-time. And uh, yeah, I sort of ate, you know, pasta that I found on the floor the first one and a half years, uh, more or less. <laughs> uh, I love it. Yeah, and you know you know how it is. But it was a really nice studio, and it, this was like 2000, end of 2001 and 2002. There was still a little bit of a business uh, going on when you talk about the studio business. So uh, I was able to do these sort of local things, and I did gospel and jazz and um, just anything that came came my way. Well, one thing we find in common with a lot of our guests is that they all have this initial period of struggle and sacrifice to do anything, to get anywhere. And I think that's important for a lot of our listeners to understand. And, and I'm sure you probably talk to a lot of different people in an industry that do what you you know, do what we all do. And uh, my question to you is, you know, would you find that that's pretty true with the other people that you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know some people that sort of came into this from uh, being in a band, uh, perhaps uh, at least one of you guys uh, might be. Yeah, the, that's the case, me. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's a pretty common common way of yeah, doing it. But, but I, I had a studio for six or seven years before my band got signed. All right, I didn't so, know that. All right. Yeah. No, but there are guys who are just starting bands by an inbox and then somehow end up recording popular bands after that. Yeah. It's kind of like the gateway drug where playing in a band just somehow seems to naturally lead to wanting to record bands. Yeah. <laughs> it would be the opposite, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for me, it was always went hand in hand because in like 1999, I priced out a studio for my band. That's when we started. And the price was so high to do it correctly that I figured I may as well try to get some credit cards and be an idiot and just start building one. Mm. So that was a natural thing, I guess, at the end of my band's career to end up at a real studio. That was like 10 years after I had started recording. So definitely wasn't an immediate thing at all. All right. But yeah, yeah I have seen it happen though. Yeah, I guess not, it's not that common. I also know a few people that sort of got spoon fed by their parents uh, into doing this as well. So I guess there are some different ways. But for me, it was definitely a lot of hard work and uh, if I sort of knew how tough it would be I probably wouldn't have done it uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah it's true it's definitely true but uh, I guess I was you know we usually talk about these things um, in Sweden it's three T's it doesn't apply in English but it's it's about um, uh, luck timing and talent and it's in that order oh, yeah. basically Yes, definitely. And uh, I was so, sort of able to get into this before the whole Napster thing, you know, drowned the industry, more or less. And um, I was also lucky enough to... There was this rock hero in my city called Don Svaner. 
Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. I haven't heard of him. Edge of Sanity. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Uh, and he um, had been doing productions with bands that I never heard of, like Opeth and um, Catatonia and stuff like that. And he uh, sort of got tired of that, and he was working in the local music store. And he sort of heard some stuff that I've been doing with some local A&R band and some rock thing, and he th- thought it sounded really cool. So he recommended uh, Catatonia, um, a Swedish band, to to work with me. And um, uh, that's sort of how I uh, got the opportunity to work on an album that was released outside of the Swedish borders. So from that, suddenly I started to get some some work from, you know, Italy and uh, Spain and France. Nice. So the luck was that you met him in the first place at the time in his career where he was over it and was ready to pass the baton to somebody else. Exactly. And at the time where I was good enough to sort of be able to uh, to do something about it. Uh, it sounds like shit if I listen to it today, but still. <laughs> <laughs> we all hate our old recordings. <laughs> yeah, I guess what, what matters is that it doesn't sound like shit compared to other things relevant to it at that point in time, though. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So it, the the luck factor, I think that people universally agree that it's a big part in any sort of success in life, especially in creative fields, but... I've noticed that the harder you work, the the more luck tends to happen just because when opportunities present themselves, you can actually make good on them. Yeah, you have to be able to execute the opportunity. That's kind of the part everybody leaves out. There's a famous quote. What is it? Um, luck is when opportunity meets uh, preparation. So, you know, you have to be able to follow through. And I feel like that's the part that's the most crucial because you only get a few opportunities maybe, but if you're prepared for them and you actually are able to deliver on them, that's when you become, quote, lucky. And no one ever really sees the lead up to that either. It's just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you're successful. And then people are like, oh yeah, that's cool. And you're like, oh yeah, well, you don't understand how many unsuccessful things happen to get to that point. That is very true. And um, yeah, hard work is, that's another thing about uh, the luck factor. I didn't have a wife nor a girlfriend at the time (laughs) uh, and especially no kids. So, uh, you know, I was able to, to work well, I did. I worked 15 hours a day, uh, seven days a week, uh, more or less, never any days off. And uh, uh, looking back, considering the low cash flow, <laughs> I wonder what I did. But I did work that much, and um, that that's definitely helped me to today, at this point, actually being able to have a wife and <laughs> kids and uh, have a sort of fairly good working schedule. Do you take time off now? Because I have three kids, for example, and a wife, and I try really hard to not work on the weekends. And being that we're in the audio industry, it's always, you know, the 11 p.m. call where you have to go in at four in the morning and fix something. And uh, it's, it's difficult. The way I get around it is I turn my phone off and I intentionally let everybody know that I'm unavailable. Don't even try. That sounds smart. I should pick up on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll put a disclaimer to say that I always don't adhere to that advice, even though I know better. (laughs) My wife is, uh, my wife is from Russia, so she's very strict and very methodical about her, uh, her time spent with family. And, um, 
it's always a challenge for me to balance, but I do try to spend as much time with them as possible. So for me, it's interesting to see how other people handle that sort of situation. Yeah, you know, my wife, she's Swedish. She's a combat feminist, uh, and that's not helping. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, but actually, the thing, what I was talking about before, when I sort of had a crossroad in my career, where I was uh, actually considering doing something else, and we ended up building the house and the new studio instead. Um, that was sort of me trying to build myself away from work <laughs> uh, and focusing uh, focusing on mixing and uh, more seriously on mastering instead of so much recording. Because up until that point, most bands sort of asked for a full production, and that's quite talling. Uh, so... You were actually trying to decrease the amount of hours you were spending with bands and in the same room. I totally understand that because I had uh, bands living in my house with me. You know, my place in Florida has the lodging in it, mm. and so I would live with bands. And I know that there was one year where we went 11 months straight without a day off from bands. So. I totally understand and think that having bands live with you is a bad long-term idea. It is. Um, but, um, yeah, I guess I saw, saw the opportunity of being able to focus more on mixing because the workload was sort of starting to lean over towards mixing. And I was sitting in this huge studio with a huge drum room that got used less and less. You know, the budgets were cut. and Shrinking. Uh, yeah question for you so was do you think that opeth was the turning point when you started to do more and more like well-known bands or do you think it was catatonia because first time i heard of you was on ghost reveries yeah definitely opeth uh, the thing with um, opeth is that they're very good friends with catatonia and uh, uh, after catatonia i got to do uh, bloodbath uh, which is a project where uh, mike from opeth used to sing yeah. Um, so, and he was impressed by by that. So, he called me about Opeth after he heard the Bloodbath thing. So, it all comes back to the Catatonia album that I did, basically. Since the uh, the album Ghost Reveries, my schedule has been full, more or less, all the time. So that was definitely the turning point for me, and uh, I was lucky there because uh, Opeth was, you know, a, a pretty decent band. But um, with that album, they signed to, to Roadrunner uh, US. Yeah. And that was a huge turning point for, for them. They became a much bigger band after that. And, uh, you know, a band with a lot of credibility in the scene, perhaps more importantly. So uh, that was really good for me. By the time they signed a Roadrunner, they had so much credibility from the older albums that it was a super intelligent signing, I think, for for Roadrunner. Definitely worthy of the investment. And I definitely think that Opeth have been huge ever since, pretty much, from what I know. Question for you about that record in particular, or just about when you work with any band that's got it a genius or super talented guy in it. Do you approach that differently than when you're working with, say, a less talented band? How do you approach the two scenarios? Um, I do, definitely. I mean, 
I try to be fairly flexible um, as a producer when I'm hired to produce. I work with bands where um, th- there is clearly a you know a production ID behind the compositions and everything, and then you sort of can help refine that, and you could you know focus on getting the right sounds and guitars and you know that sort of performance production and sound production, and um, put your the ideas you have through about the the songs. But um, it can definitely look quite different. If I work with, I shouldn't say name drop any <laughs> bands, but but uh, th- th- then you might have to. Well, the more usual approach is that I'm you know team up with a band. I listen to their demos, um, give them feedback. You know, edit the songs, um, cut away parts, uh, discuss the arrangements, and that sort of more in depth production thing. Uh, but with a band like Opeth, that would not be possible uh, because Mike has a very clear idea of what he wants. So definitely a, a big difference there. And I'm fine with both both ways of working. And I'm sure that Devin Townsend, same thing. You're basically there to make their vision come to life. Absolutely. I mean, especially since uh, he's a good producer himself and... Uh, so, but I haven't produced any Devin Townsend albums. Uh, I have mixed mixed for him. So, well, I find it really interesting that you just explained two really unique scenarios: one where you're working with an artist that really knows what they want, and one where you're working with a producer that really knows what they want. And I, I'm curious, what do you find to be, you know, the preferable situation? <laughs> well, I mean, that depends because, um, in one way. It's nice when you sort of get trusted with everything that you sort of, you know, your word is their law, sort of. Uh, that is that is nice, especially the older I get. I like that more and more. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, it's nice. But it's not necessarily going to be the best album, though, because probably a person like Devin Townsend has a, has a little bit of a higher creative peak than both myself and uh, the the regular band, so to speak. So the album could still be be better, even though my work would be less. That sounds like a perfect situation to me. I've always thought that the more talented a band is, the less I have to do, and I'm perfectly okay with that. And at the same time, you can focus a lot more on the art of engineering and production I think when the musicians are better and have more of a vision you don't have to do their job for them as well so a question for you about your setup because you have a hybrid setup and lots of analog gear and clearly you're recording on a computer and making modern records so you have to do things quickly and you know deal with the modern challenges do you uh, keep things permanently wired wired in do you keep things hardwired or are you changing the setup on every mix or every album like how do you keep things efficient when you're dealing with that much outboard yeah that is a good question that has a simple um, answer i do keep uh, the gear connected Uh, i have a huge uh, patch system since i'm i'm used to that from you know working with the old time ssls and stuff so uh uh, I have the possibility of switching, but I never do because of recallability. These times, people sort of 
expect you to be able to change anything at any time and um, uh, then you sort of need to have it like that but I also bounce a lot of my hardware into the system I'm sort of pretty sure of what I'm doing so I don't expect people to ask me do changes that would sort of require me to require to change the particular hardware chain so um, but, but I still sort of keep it plugged in yes so you you're more of a fan of committing and printing rather than running everything on inserts yeah um, I mean I am running it on inserts if we if we're talking about mixing now then I'm running it on inserts and then I print it um, when the mix is is ready or when I'm Got sort it. of ready with with that insert chain uh, but uh, to be honest I don't use that much outboard gear I know that's heartbreaking to hear but uh, oh we don't care <laughs> we we think that whatever gets the job done is the best you know yeah yeah I mean uh, times are changing yeah they are and the plugins are getting better and uh I guess I'm getting better so in you know using the the software and uh, uh, I have some things that I still feel that I can't sort of live without and it's what are some of your favorite toys like that um, I have some some vintage LA2s that just do stuff on my vocals that uh, I haven't been able to recreate and believe me I, I have tried I would really want to get rid of my last piece of hardware <laughs> for uh, you know a more efficient workflow and more time with my kids but um, there are some things that I just have to to print through uh, that I like so far and there are some other things like the 1178 on on the drum bus um, that's usually in there and I have a bunch of different vintage and uh, custom uh, 1176 uh, compressors that also see a lot of use on my vocal uh, tracks uh, and, and sometimes on the drums and I have a, also a chain on the uh, well since I'm also working with mastering um, I have some stuff on my mix bus um, that I would put on someone else's mix that I actually put directly when I'm mixing making the mastering process uh, smaller job on my own mixes uh, that I sort of, you know, really want to have there. So question about mastering, what did you always master your own work or is that something that you eventually adopted? The reason I ask is because the modern thing, you know, for the new guys, everybody just starts mastering on their mixes from the beginning. Like that's just how it's done now. But I know that that's a fairly new phenomenon. Lots of guys who started before five years ago were used to sending their work to get mastered by somebody else. Well, I think that's the wise thing to do uh, because um, for me, I definitely did not master to begin with. Well, I did uh, at the very beginning because then I worked on stuff that sort of, you know, didn't have the budget for a mastering. But uh, so I sort of had to to learn it a little bit. But then as soon as I started to work with um, the real productions, I always sent, sent it away to mastering and I loved to attend the mastering and it sort of helped me think or hear, you know, my mix is in a good environment or even better environment. And um, 
it, it helped me with my next mix and you know discussing with the mastering engineer uh, back and forth so it it was a very good thing to begin with but then i sort of started i guess my ear started to become better than the common mastering engineer uh, that doesn't sound very humble but that's sort of no, how it's I, okay um, <laughs> we understand. We <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's what's interesting is I remember Andy Sneep saying back ten years ago or something that he got sick of having other people master his work because his masters were always better, and it's just kind of the natural progression I've seen with a lot of my friends who used to get other people mastering their stuff. Is there comes a point where your masters are just better because you understand the music and you've got the skills and the ears at that point and. Yeah. Bringing somebody else at the final point doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, that's also how, how I felt. Uh, I can't say in retrospect that I was correct about that because uh, <laughs> I have mastered now for quite a few years and um, uh, it feels like it's uh, perhaps the last couple of years where I sort of really reached a, 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 you know, a, a really good level but uh, my problem was that the snare was always killed um, in the mastering stage and I hated that so I sort of oh my god that's the worst yeah you know they were doing uh, at least in Sweden there were no real rock metal mastering guys who who sort of did it properly so it was always a gamble you know going there and that was the same reason I started mastering my own stuff as well because every time I would go to an awesome mastering engineer there'd always be no snare drum left in the mix and I'm like dude it's heavy music why yeah. can't I hear snare yeah exactly so you know on the topic of snare drums actually uh, one thing that you're known for and that I've always loved about your work is that while it's modern and big sounding your drums always sound pretty natural like I'm sure you're you've got some samples in there but they sound a lot more natural than a lot of comparable stuff. And so uh, the bands that that I hear coming through your place like sound like real bands. Like, Do you have any methodology for how you go about recording or mixing drums to keep them sounding natural, yet still punchy and big and modern? I'm lucky enough to, to come from the, the old school, you know, uh, recording on, on tape and... Um in a real good sounding room and I worked with drum techs for a very long time, you know, getting good tones. Uh, and when you have that, it's, it's very easy, um, to mix drums in my opinion. And, um, but, um, I can't say that I've always been particularly good at it, but, uh, it, I guess it's something, I have a vision in my head how I want the drums to, to be. And I, I don't like when things sounds too, out of tune and, and too triggered. So I guess that's just, I don't like it, so I don't mix that way. And then I just have to find the ways to make it sound natural. And as long as I record it myself, it's really easy. And if I mix um, something that, you know, comes in, then it might require some more work. But, uh, well, I guess, uh, I think that a lot of metal mixers, they sort of, it's the standard thing, put on the sample, base, base it around the sample. I always base it around the drums first. I do, you know, I work hard on making the drums sound as good as they can with no samples at all first. And then I sort of add the support. As needed. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I've seen it started from both directions. There are some guys 
you know, and their work sounds great too. It's just a different style, but there are some guys that literally choose the samples first and then decide how to blend in the natural just so that it doesn't sound like a total drum machine. But the other approach, which is what you're talking about, starting from the natural drums first, I've heard of a lot of guys doing it that way too. And I, I can totally agree that the more time you put in on tuning and getting good rooms and just good source material, the easier you're going to have with getting real drum sounds in your mix. Um, there's no way around it. Speaking of getting sounds, Jens, we have a little segment we're doing here called Rapid Fire, and we're going to transition here. And we'd love to know some of your favorite chains for recording, or you can talk about mixing whatever. If you have any sacred cows, as we call them, or trade secrets you don't want to share, that's okay too. So um, I'm going to call off a few different types of you know, things and then just whatever comes to mind on what you would use on it or how you would record it or mix it. It's totally up to you. Gosh, <laughs> let's try. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No pressure. All right. So let's start with drums because we've been discussing them and that would be perfect. So snare drum. Oh, um, I hate it, but a modified 57 on top and a, a, a bitter uh, 57 um on the bottom, not a fifty uh, standard fifty-seven because it doesn't sound good combined with the top fifty-seven. But the uh, beta fifty-seven just somehow always sounds exactly how I want it to sound. And um, well, that has to go, go through my SSL console if I record, of course. Uh, but the preamps would be some sort of tab Telefunken two seventy-six or six seventy-six. And um, there would probably be some 1176 compressor on there as well. And um, the um, 902 deesser from DBX is the best way to get rid of some, some hi-hats. I don't do much gating, actually, uh, while mixing. And I recently became endorsed by the um, Dramatom thing that sometimes really can do the trick and... Uh, minimizing the um, hi-hat bleed. And most importantly, the snare drum, uh, a vintage Black Beauty. It's boring, I know, but it's fantastic. Oh, it's a great snare. Okay, um, what about room mics? Oh, uh, requires a good room. I've been through them most setups, I think, uh, throughout my career. Currently, I'm using uh, Bloomline um, setup, uh, like depending on the room size, but in my rooms, usually like three meters from the drum kit. And uh, I try to put stuff behind the kick drums so I can get a more focused kick sound that I would otherwise. I also use these sort of vocal reflection filters, not for vocals, but I use them for um, taking out certain loud symbols uh, out of the room uh, acoustically by blocking them a little bit. And um, my favorite room mics, uh, well, I'm sure there are better ones, but the ones that I've been using for the last 15 years are uh, the 414EB version, the, the vintage one. It's fantastic, in my opinion. You can also use them as uh, AB in... Uh, Omni sounds great, and um, 
those I usually put through some sort of tube preamp. Uh, I usually use a drummer 1960. It's not fantastic, but it works. Uh, some easy compression. And uh, I also put them parallel through a distorted bus, uh, usually the SSL pre that I uh, crack, you know, uh, overdrive a lot, and um, EQ to taste. And then I might end up using only the distorted uh, room in my mix, and sometimes a blend with the uh, unaltered bloom line. Oh, that's a killer answer, by the way. Sweet. How about guitar? Distorted guitar, I should clarify. Distorted guitar, and that's a wide concept. Uh, rhythms. <laughs> about rhythms. Yeah, heavy rhythm guitars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when, when it comes to, to metal um, rhythm guitar, um, uh, well, recording-wise, it's... I haven't tried everything, but uh, usually I put like four SM57s on there. Um, on Well... Yeah, I usually put four of them there, and I sort of know how I want them. Uh, I'm not afraid of, of putting them straight into the, the cone. And uh, then I listen to them, put them through some various nice preamps that I have. The Telefunken's um, solid-state ones are very, very good. Um, and then I listen to them, and I choose the one or the two best-sounding ones, and then I go out and I position the other twos until they sound better than the first ones I thought sounded the best. And then when I do that, I reposition one and two until they sound better than three <laughs> and four. Um, <laughs> and then I try, you know, the, the, uh, any blend and combination. And sometimes I could be three microphones, sometimes it could be one microphone that sort of ends up being my final sound. And then I always put a, a Royer 121 there as well. And sometimes that is the that alone is the rhythm sound, and usually with a blend of 57s or whatever. Uh, but it, it can be a painful process. It takes a day to sort of get the, the correct mic blend <laughs> for a rhythm sound. And um, my favorite cabinet right now is, uh, well, it's pretty standard Mesa oversized rectifier uh, with the V30. Uh, I think those are, are really good. And my favorite and at the moment would be the uh, diesel VH4. I think it sounds pretty brutal. Uh, also like the Bogner Ecstasy and uh, well, I have the EVH and I have everything, I think. And I have one of these pre-500 uh, rectifiers as well. I like that for some, some music a lot as well. And uh, I don't do any compression on that. I have a... Amex channel in a box that I use for some uh, EQing of the sum of the microphone. And I have an API summing mixer that I use to blend the channels because I never record the rhythm uh, microphones one by one. I always want them as one track. Basically, it has to do with how I'm used to record. And I see people record, you know, you get mixed projects in with four or five signals per guitar and everything is recorded the same with lead guitars and everything with the same setup and it's well doesn't really make that makes me insane honestly <laughs> yeah. throw them all out <laughs> <laughs> yeah and normally when I get that they're all bad sounds too I wonder why that is yeah, uh, yeah. normally you don't get stuff like that from a great producer like I, I 
can't think of one time where I've been involved in a project where something great came in like that. It's always garbage. But. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's because I guess it's also a thing. If you record like that, then you sort of, well, it's probably okay. Let's record the next guitar. But if you sort of have to commit to one track there, you sort of, I guess you think a little bit more about what you're actually recording. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, last but not least, how about vocals? Vocals, vocals. Um, well, Screaming vocals. We'll keep it metal. Ah, really? Uh, okay. Um, well, I guess I, I sort of treat them fairly equal when it comes to the recording side. I either record with a, a U47 a vintage uh, with a, a KK56 capsule. Um, I think it's great. I've had the Wagner uh, 47 that's supposedly fantastic, but it's not as good as my vintage one. And uh, I have... Um, U67 vintage that's pretty good as well but not as good as the U47 I, I sort of cried when I used the vintage 47 the first time and I realized that I should have done this so many years ago uh, <laughs> and um, then I also used the SM7 uh, SM7A slightly better than the SM7B in my opinion, uh, at least my <laughs> the one that I have uh, it's uh, really good for sometimes clean vocals as well but for screamed vocals, well, you know, it's, it's standard. It's everyone's using it. So, but uh, it really it is a factor there that I don't think people think about too much. Uh, if you use an, if you have a bad room for recording vocals, you'd probably be better with a SM7 than a good or supposedly good uh, condenser microphone because the, when you sort of compress and perhaps distort the vocals, if you want a like a modern sounding. Uh, mix, then you might compress all these room nodes and shit out in a bad way. So the end result would probably be better with an SM7, even though the SM7 might not sound that appealing to you when you compare it to your nice Rode microphone or whatever. So um, acoustics, it's... Uh, I don't think people think about it enough when it they comes really to should. Hey, yeah. And on that topic, I actually have one of my own. Sorry, guys, I do want to ask this, but uh, how about acoustic guitars? Well, the room and the guitar, <laughs> I'm afraid that's super important. I used to be super anal. Well, I, I guess I still am. When it comes to strings, you know, uh, we tried, been trying a lot of different strings. Didarius compared to Tomastic. Uh, great uh, Austrian company um, picks, finding the best pick, uh, these sort of things. And uh, then I usually put a bunch of microphones there, like three, um, this sort of standard thing, uh, uh, 30, 40 centimeters from the 12th fret, perhaps a little bit towards the resonance hole. And then I put some microphones uh, close to the... Uh, uh, the head and uh, some microphones down to the body. I usually put one finger in my ear and then I crawl around the guitar player <laughs> when he's playing and trying to <laughs> sort of listen where I think it sort of sounds the the best, basically. And uh, then I place microphones there. And um, then I spend some time putting them up and depending on the part, if it's an, a single acoustic guitar, 
part, then I would like to have it in, in some sort of stereo setup. And that stereo setup could consist of two microphones, but it could also consist of five microphones. Uh, uh, if it's uh, rhythm guitar, uh, acoustic guitars with some other stuff, like, you know, pop rock thing in a chorus yeah. or something, then I would uh, not use a lot of microphones. Then it would only be one microphone and I would sort of have to slaughter it to, to get it there uh, into the mix. But um, for me, it's never been so easy to just put up a microphone when it comes to acoustic guitars. I always wanted to make them sound as they should in my head and that usually takes some time. And uh, But the room is super important there. And the player, I'm sure, too. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no, you can't hide behind anything on no. an acoustic guitar. Yeah. So we have some questions from our audience. They're very, very excited that you're coming on here. So just want to ask you some of them, if you don't mind. Uh, James Zahn is asking, when you're dealing with bands that have a lot of intense double kicking, like Dragon Force and Amon Amarth, do you edit every hit? And how do you make sure that those fast double kicks don't muddy up the mix? Uh, yeah, I mean, I usually use uh, Beat Detective for that. And even with that, those sort of bands, I usually have some room mics into my to my drums. And uh, hence what I was talking about before, the blankets and uh, sofas and stuff that I put uh, in front of the kicks to sort of kill them from the room as much as possible. And that way I can separate the hands and, and feet while editing. And then I use Beat Detective, uh, never never 100% though, but, uh, you know, to, to taste. Mm-hmm. Um, and because uh, I think it sounds more aggressive if it's not completely in time. It sounds so boring when it's completely quantized, but that was a side note. When it comes to Muddy, I usually use some different samples and I might ride the volume of those samples differently depending on if it's if it's a slow part or if it's fast double kick drum and I also automate EQs to sort of make them appear equal yeah I think you have to automate EQ filters on fast double bass yeah or else it'll just get out of control in the low end so Amrish Mahabir is asking when it comes to your continued education in recording, do you have any go-to places you like to seek information? Well, I've been spending a lot of time on gear slots over the year, over the years. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> it has costed me a lot of money. <laughs> but uh, I think I'm free from that. I haven't been in there for... I sort of wish he didn't ask that question because now I started to think about it again. Uh, What's your username? I'm going to go look up all of your posts and study them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're mostly stupid and obscene. (laughs) Um, Well, it's... um, uh, No, gear slots, definitely. I'm I'm a little bit of of a nerd when it comes to technical aspects. So I've been there, you know, trying to... I want everything to be as good as possible. And there are some really good people there with a lot of knowledge when it comes to these um, sort of things like uh, what's the best uh, capsule for a U47 or uh, how do you connect your star word clock system with the least possible uh, jitter and you know stuff like that. But uh, I think that's that's sort of it. Um, I haven't been much of an information seeker 
I think I've just been working so much, so I haven't really had the time. I think the best education is to sort of, well, at least you need to be doing it all the time to train your head how to do it. You cannot read up on how to mix. You sort of just need to mix. I don't have any secrets when I mix. It's, you know, I'm using the standard things, more or less. I think to, to get it together, it's just about training your brain, and there is no... There are no shortcuts. No, you just you just have to put in the time. I think getting well, you did go to school for it at first, but I think once you have a basic education, it's all work. Yeah, from that point on. Yeah, I guess that was really good for me when I started out, and I had this. I started out on a Mackie sixteen. Oh, what's it called? Mackie eight bus uh, console, uh, thirty-two channels, and uh, you know you didn't have much there and I had like two Behringer compressors, composers in the rack that was sort of it uh, when I went to school and uh, so you sort of had to use that. These days must be a nightmare to be a a newcomer and you download some software and you see the plug-in list and what am I supposed (laughs) to use, you know so I'm, I'm, I'm feeling grateful that I got that sort of old school road to knowing the shit. Yeah, so AJ Vienna is asking, what's your approach for mixing super complex and dense arrangements like the last Between the Buried and Me record or Watershed? Oh, hard work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, I love... I love it. I love mixing a, a rock band that has uh, two guitars and a bass and one vocal. It's great Then I can mix four songs a day. It's just hard work, you know, and I I guess I'm so used to it, so I sort of usually understand the vision. If someone puts something in the arrangement, then I sort of understand why it's there, because I've been there so many times in similar projects, and I, you know, I know that people want their stuff to, to be heard, and the thing is, when you layer a lot of things, you need to sort of do more with the EQ, usually, than you have to if there are just a few channels. Uh, common physics. <laughs> and um, it's uh, it's dangerous if you if you have the project with 200 channels and you start to solo listen everything and EQ while solo listening and then you put it together because it won't make sense together. Uh, so don't touch that solo button so much only when you need to f- really fix something or that is perhaps one one tip I can give. But that said, I'm like that. I usually say things like a statement, and then I go the next day and do exactly the opposite. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so it's, uh, well, I guess I do what's needed to be done. <laughs> and it's always going to be different, you know, from song to song, album to album, I think. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I do have some things that uh, I like to reamp the guitars, for example, uh, unless they sound great. Uh, which they usually don't. I like to reamp the bass if it doesn't sound great. And I have a pretty large setup of samples that I know will work for me when I work with the uh, with the drum kit. So, um, well, that makes things a little easier. It's hard. I think uh, that one mixer that could be a good sort of inspiration for people if, if they want to work on difficult projects it's not any of the metal ones it's uh, chris lord uh, how how do you say algae yeah yeah yep. um, oh yeah he's phenomenal he's he's very good and he's not afraid of uh, doing what it takes to get stuff into the mix that's something that 
people should perhaps take with them when it's needed. And then it might take still take 10 years to understand that you did too much or too little at a certain point. I guess you need to sort of dare. And uh, he would not stack 15 plugins to do a, a task. He would just do it with the first EQ and then be done with it, so to speak. And I see some chains that I get in for mixing and I sort of import it and I see how they've been listening and what they've been doing. And it's usually, I think, well, in my opinion, it looks like it's usually too much stuff and there are three plugins doing something and then the fourth one is trying to fix what the three first ones did. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a question for you based off that. When I started mixing many, many years ago, I stacked as many things as possible. I saw this Charles Die video called Mix It Like a Record and you know he put like eight plugins on every single thing and I'm like, oh yeah, that's why my mixes suck. So I used to mix like that and as I've gotten more experienced and started making a lot more money doing it, I've gotten a lot simpler in my mixing and um, I'm finding I'm using less and less plugins and sometimes I'll have like a limiter and a stock EQ and that's it and I'm sitting there scratching my head and going, wow, this mix is like 80% balance stock EQ and a little bit of limiting. <laughs> so yeah. do you find yourself doing that at all? Like it's gotten simpler? Yeah, um, I guess it goes a little bit in waves. This this thing you know about mixing, it's so complex. So it's, uh, uh, you're always floating. I mean, I learn new stuff every every week and I forget stuff every week as well <laughs> and then I listen back to or check some old project and I say oh fuck I used to do like that I should do that again and then I sort of you know pick it up again and it sort of moves a little bit and I usually describe it as it moves in, in circles and hopefully that circle is rolling forward a little bit <laughs> as well <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh, well at the time I'm actually trying to use less compressors than I have been the last couple of years. So I'm using, well, my to-go EQ is the, well, surprise, SSL E-channel EQ. I usually use the Waves one. I also have the Slate one. It's pretty good. And that's, it's just because I grew up with that or I I got my first SSL console uh, 2003, I think. So I've been using it for at least some years, and uh, it's sort of just in in my spine how to, how to use that, and I think that's um, it's really good. That's sort of what I would need that and access to to a compressor, and then you would definitely be able to do to do the mix. Usually, when you solo list and stuff, and you think that yeah, what I, if I put this uh, tape emulator there and the multiband there and uh, uh, a little bit of limiter, and uh, then you sort of it's easy to overtreat every channel so they get sort of impossible to mix together or at least it gets pretty you know fatigue on the ear when you listen to the mix if everything is too controlled or whatever it needs to breathe a little bit inside the mix uh, i think that said i do hear a lot of things that probably would have needed a lot of more treatment here and there as well <laughs> so it's uh, but uh, in general that's it's easy to your mix is not necessarily going to sound better if you use a lot of plugins. I guess that's it's a short. Yeah. So Dave Vol is asking, would you be willing to divulge details about your left, center, right bass processing? Are we talking about bass? Yeah. Like bass guitar or? Yeah. Ba- uh, actually, I don't know. I think bass guitar, yeah. 
because he might have read up on me saying that I sometimes use the bass in stereo. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that's probably what he read. Uh, could be. Uh, well, I don't know. For me, uh, the bass doesn't have that much of a... Well, physically, bass doesn't have that much of a, a stereo uh, perspective uh, or perception. Um, and it will create problem outside of the controlled control room if you try to put too many low-end things on the sides, so to speak. Um, when vinyl is coming back as it is, it's also a very bad idea to put a lot of low-end information on the sides. Uh, but uh, that said, uh, on some productions I have been doing that in, like if it's a break or something airy part or whatever, I have double-tracked the bass and used it as left and right. And there is one album uh, with a fairly successful uh, bass sound called The Great Cold Distance by Catatonia. And there I actually did use um, an Ampeg 810 cabinet that I mic'd with a couple of mics. And then when I was fooling around with it in the control room, I found that the best sound that I got was if I used two of those microphones left and right, and then I had a, a distorted line in the middle, and that became the bass sound for, for, for that album. Uh, that sort of worked well at that point, but I sort of never really replicated it after it. So usually I just put the bass in the middle. And, and Catatonia is not one of those bands with super fast stuff or anything. No. Uh, so it sounds like it could work a lot better on that than, I don't know, Arch Enemy or something. Yeah, I suppose. It's, uh, I guess my, my days of stereo bass is uh, over. <laughs> but but, but, but uh, back in the day, I used to have this um, SBX90, you know, the uh, Yamaha multi-effect. It's pretty popular still. And uh, it has this pitch shift program C, I think it is because mine died a couple of years ago, but that used to be my to-go bass stereo widener thing. Uh, sort of like if, if you put on the uh, Bristol Dahl Waves plugin bass, blah, blah, uh, there is a stereo thing there that puts chorus. It sort of reminds, uh, it probably uses that as well. I wouldn't be surprised about that. That's something I do sometimes that I put a little bit of some sort of stereo chorus or whatever on the bass track, completely depending on the song and the track. Yeah, I guess that sums it up. Yeah, I think that's exactly the answer that he was looking for. So AJ Vianna is wondering, when tracking or mixing vocals, do you prefer a single track for everything or many layers of the same part? Ooh, that's a production decision that goes with the completely depending on the song and the part. But I can tell you this, that I don't have a formula that I always do that and that. But my general thing is that on choruses it might be good with a double. Sometimes I do stereo double, sometimes I do mono double. Usually on verses I won't double unless I think the singer sucks so hard that I need to double to sort of make it work. Like... <laughs> I've done that before. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the whole Seattle scene was based around uh, double-tracking vocals to hide artifacts, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's uh, it's completely depending on how it sounds and what I, you know, if I ate my cereals or not that morning, I suppose. 
<laughs> so another question from AJ Vienna, and he promises that this is the last one. So, and I'm going to try to pronounce this album, but he said, in a situation like Pelagia by the ocean, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it or not. Anyways, on that ocean album where they recorded drums in a concert venue, how did you go about handling the many layers of room mics they recorded? Did you use them all or did you find a couple of pairs you liked and then augmented with the reverb? Uh, well, I probably listened to them and chose the one that I liked or it could have been a combination. There is no answer to that. I don't remember how I did it. Um, that's usually how, how I do. It's not like I feel that I have to use everything that's sent my way microphone-wise. I, I just find the best solution for what I get. And that could be anything, uh, de completely depending on how it sounds. Yeah, and I usually put a little bit of reverb on drums, uh, not so much. It's also something that I would automate in the, uh, in the track, depending on the part. So it just depends. Um, and uh, last question is from Giovanni Angel. And he says, any advice for us up-and-coming engineers? Run. Now <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's good advice too. <laughs> yeah, I realized that I should have some sort of a smart and which answer here. But um, it's, um, well, for me, it has worked to work really hard and... Uh, Dump your girlfriend. That's a good. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great strategy. <laughs> Kill your cat. Uh, no, but um, it's um, it requires a lot of a lot of effort in the beginning. For me, it did anyway. And I think one important thing here is um, the marketing side. I mean, you have to have something to market. So if that means that you have to record ten bands for free just to get something to a showreel or something, then you should do that and um, try to choose good bands because <laughs> a bad band will never sound good. And even though some of my best work are with bad bands, it's not <laughs> considered my best work because it still doesn't sound as good as a really good band does. Uh, work hard and get a showreel. I hear some some uh, up-and-comers here and I see it on Facebook that they complain, oh, I only got uh, that amount for that band. But, well, you never did anything, so just <laughs> don't complain. <laughs> because it is, it is pro bono for a couple of years before you sort of, you know, uh, can make a little bit of a name for yourself. Yeah, I definitely always tell people at first just record as much as humanly possible so that you just get better and you just look at it like a personal investment and then as you do that you'll get better you'll understand how to work with bands and then when people finally are comfortable giving you money you'll actually know what you're doing to a degree so i think that when you're learning it's kind of weird to even try to charge people money because you don't know what you're doing and totally mess things up. So yeah, un unless you perhaps um, spend a lot of years in in school and uh, well, yeah, yeah, for sure, can provide some sort of a professional service anyway. But uh, th this is you know artistic work, so it's always going to be hard to compare it with a car mechanic or whatever. So yeah, hard work. One thing I want to just touch on real quick because we haven't mentioned it at all, but. I've noticed that you've done a really good job about this. Like 
there's some really good videos out there that you put out basically commercials for your studio. And I, you know, I've known about you for a long time. I found these videos today. I, I didn't even know, but they're really, really good. And they really show everything someone would need to know about coming to work with you. So is that something that you've always had a mind for marketing your studio or you just kind of got a spontaneous idea one day to make a video? Oh, I suck at marketing. I really, really do. Uh, I wish I was better. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here in the fucking forest. I'll never meet anyone. So all I have, <laughs> all I have is my, my work out there uh, for marketing. But about the video, I was working with a, with a band from, from Sweden. Um, I don't even think they ever got really released, but they were called uh, Urban Ducks. And um, there were two guys there who had a... Pretty cool. They moved to Sweden from uh, Spain uh, to become rock stars. And uh, sort of, they were trying with their band there and they felt that, wow, we have to go to Sweden, the the capital of uh, European <laughs> metal and rock. So uh, they went here and, uh, well, perhaps it didn't work that well, but they were uh, professional um, video photographers and... Uh, uh, they asked me and said, hey, you, you should have a video for your studio. And I said, well, no, not really. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I said, yeah, really, you should have. We, we can do it. You know, we do it really cheap just for, for the gas price and whatever. It's like, oh, my God, it's stupid. But all right. And uh, I, I realized that it actually helped me. Uh, I put that up on, on my, my website and um, people, well, I could see that the work requests sort of, came through a little bit more often, I think. So um, after that, I've done two others, just with the mastering one to explain a little bit about, you know, I don't know. I don't even recall what I'm... You know, it definitely feels strange the first time you make a video promoting yourself, especially if you're not used to it. Like, I know I felt super uncomfortable, but there's no denying it. It really makes a big difference, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's super powerful and more guys made good videos to advertise what they do. I think that they would get more work. That is correct. Absolutely sure about that. Yeah. All right. Well, Jens, thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much info with us. Yeah, it was really awesome. We've, Al and I particularly have been fans of your work for many, many years. I mean, every time I go on Spotify and I'm like flipping through it, I'd be like, oh, this sounds good. Who did this record? Then I'll all music and there you are. <laughs> so we're excited to have you on. And also you were highly requested by our audience. So I'm just glad that we could make it work. And especially with the time zone difference and Thank you for being so open about your process as well, because some guys aren't necessarily. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I have no, I have no secrets. That's what I always tell people. So I think I know what your secret is. Is it? It's your ears. Well, I don't know. Perhaps. Perhaps is there a it's preset my, for that? Perhaps it's my <laughs> combat feminist wife. That's my. <laughs> 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 you know, most guys I know that have known outside of this show or on this show, like it really just comes down to hard work and their hearing. Like most of the guys, you could just give them stock plugins and they would still make a great sounding record. Oh, that is very true. Absolutely. Yeah. Like 
I mean, the the good gear is nice for sure, but you know, once you have the skills, you don't need it. It's just there by choice. Yeah, and you you need those ears to actually appreciate that gear. <laughs> I think because uh, you, I mean, you need to learn to hear those subtle things that, that you know, different preamps against each other could the difference they could render and uh, these sort of things. I kind of have a saying that, uh, you know, your mom doesn't care what snare drum you chose to record on the record or if it has 2 dB more of 200 hertz. She either likes the song or she doesn't. Oh, that's, and that's it. It's also very true. <laughs> yeah. But but if you work on a shit song, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> at least you could put two more dBs at 200. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, all right. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, it was great. Thanks. Thank you, yeah, guys. Man. Really Thank good you. talking to you. Thanks a lot. Take care. Likewise. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Kush Audio, a premium manufacturer of top quality audio hardware and plugins. The high end just got higher. Visit thehouseofkush.com for more information. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.